0: I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of 1 Thessalonians. You'll find the main passage included in the bulletin itself, as well as a Bible in the pew in front of you, if you don't have one. This morning we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as you turn there, I would do well to remind you or advise you if you weren't aware, but next week... Lord willing, we're going to have a guest pastor, Reverend David Shexnader, who's the associate pastor at Calvin OPC. He has preached for us a number of times, and he has commented on how each time he comes here, he's received a very warm welcome. And that's a wonderful thing. May that continue. Also, I'd remind you, you're probably aware of this, but he will not recognize who is a visitor and who is not. And so we need to be especially aware next week If there are people among us who are new, whether they need to be directed to the nursery or simply enfolded, welcomed. But this morning, we come to the final sermon in our series through 1 Thessalonians. If you've not been here for that, this has been a series over several months, working our way, just passage by passage through it. We now come to the end. There is something I find personally satisfying. I hope you do as well. In coming to the end not because we want it to be done but to think we've made it we've seen another portion of the word and by God's blessing this morning the very passage we come to has to do with completing first Thessalonians so let's give attention to the word beginning at verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's ask for that grace to be at work even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for setting aside time for us, allowing us to be here and appointing a time for us to hear your word, read, proclaimed, applied. And we ask that you would cause it to bear the fruit you desire. Lord, we don't profess to know perfectly how you would work, only that you work good, and we ask for your blessing in us and through us, for we pray in the name whose name is always yes and amen, that of our Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Now, maybe you have not been here through some or all of this series, or maybe it would simply be helpful to have this reminder, but there is an overall tone this epistle. If you read it this afternoon, you would come upon the same thing. The overall tone of this epistle is one of very intense affection. You have missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, who were only in the city of Thessalonica for a short while as they planted this church. Then they were forced to flee for their very lives. They were being persecuted. And they now are spending time elsewhere. It's some six months, maybe a year later, And they are writing to make it clear to those people they left behind, we love you and we would like to be with you. And that love that they have is not of themselves, it is an outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ordinarily, you would not have expected Paul, Silas, and Timothy to show love to the Thessalonians who are predominantly Gentiles. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are not, they are Jews. And here the Lord is moving through this epistle to show love to this young church. In some ways, that makes the last words all the more striking. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't just say, would you please read this letter to all the church? I'm, I'm confident that you will. But he uses the strongest possible obligation. He lays upon them these words, I put you under oath before the Lord I put you under oath before the Lord. He is calling on God to be both witness and judge if the ministers and elders of this church to whom the epistle has been entrusted fail to heed the command. Now consider the command itself as it says, have this letter read to all the brothers. And why does it say, have this letter read and not simply let them all read it. Make a bunch of copies and have them all read it. Why is it have this letter read. I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't fault you if your first thought has to do with illiteracy. And that certainly is a factor. Arguably between 30 and 70 percent of the congregation would have been unable to read this letter themselves. In the ancient world, reading was very frequently, most often in fact, a community exercise. A person reads to others who are present. This changes our view, by the way, of what the Bereans, the next town over, were doing. When it says they searched the scriptures daily to see if what the apostles had said was true. Sometimes we imagine them going back to their houses, opening up their Bible, and searching. But they would not have even had a copy of the Bible, any one family. That would not have been common. So rather, they would have gone back to the synagogue and in groups would have heard different people read passages, and then they would have entered into discussion, conversation about that. This understanding would have been communal. So certainly, illiteracy is a factor. I don't believe it's the factor. And I draw your attention to the Lord's appointed means, his primary means throughout all of covenant history, for revealing his will and applying the grace of his word. From ancient times for about a thousand years all the way up to the time of the apostles, the custom was for God's people to assemble together and there would be a person who would read a passage and then it would be explained and applied. And you find this for instance in Nehemiah 8 where it says that the priest Ezra reads the law before a huge gathering of people in Jerusalem. Thousands of people hear a large segment of scripture. Now in that time there Obviously not having the advantages of a microphone as I do. So then it says in that passage that the crowd separated into groups, probably of several hundred, and individual priests went among them and then basically preached what had been read. They applied and they explained the things that had been read. Then you look in Jesus' ministry. He's not inventing what he does in his first sermon. He's carrying on a tradition that had persisted for hundreds of years. In the book of Luke, in chapter 4, it says that Jesus read from Isaiah 61 and then explained and proclaimed and applied what was there. When Paul is calling to have apostolic teaching communicated among all the brothers, the imagery here is of the gathered assembly, not unlike this. Not simply go by yourself. And this has to do with the Lord's wisdom and will, That his primary way of working graciously through his word is not individualistic. There are tremendous blessings in individual study. But his primary way is through the communal gathering of his people. It is an act wherein we all together hear and receive. And it's within this view of things that the Holy Spirit is doing something this morning. He is impressing upon us individually and as a congregation a solemn set of duties. The very language, the fact that it's calling for a vow before the Lord, this is solemn. And the duties that he's calling us to here are pretty simple. He's calling upon the officers of the church, the elders, the ministers of the word, to ensure that the whole counsel of God is heralded, not just portions. And likewise, you, the people of God, have a solemn duty to hear. All of us need all of it, not some of us need some of it. And why is that? It's exactly what's described in verse 28, that the full measure of the grace of Jesus Christ would belong to all of us. There is grace to be found even in a small portion of the word, and yet to receive all the counsel of God is the most gracious blessing that we could have this side of glory. And so it's with these things in mind that the Lord is going to guide us this morning by way of three main headings, and I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But they're basically these. First, we need to see and be reminded, what are the main temptations not to give the whole counsel of God? What are the main temptations to withhold part of the word? And then secondly, why is it that the apostle desires all of First Thessalonians to be read? And you'll come to see it has to do with the same reasons we desire all of the word to be familiar. And then finally, by way of conclusion, we'll consider together, practically, how are we going to seek to do that here? How do we uphold a whole knowledge of God's word? So first, the first main heading, consider with me simply the temptations that would have been upon them. And I don't think it's too strong to say that there were temptations to withhold part of the word. The fact that the apostle uses such a strong command. He gives them a charge before God. He knows that elders and ministers in Thessalonica might feel tempted to withhold part of this message. And the same is true today. There are parts of this very epistle which, when I came to them, I felt a little bit uncomfortable bringing these things. And maybe you who sat here for some of it, you felt a little bit uncomfortable too. Why is it that In any portion of scripture, ministers of the word or elders might want parts to be held back from public consumption. Two main reasons that I lay before you, there are many, but these I think are the two that are perennial, that we have to be on guard against. The first is that any of these officers might have had a personal opinion that parts of this are just not especially profitable. They're fine, but they're not profitable for everyone to hear. Maybe We leave that part for someone to read on their own. The whole church doesn't need all of this. And I would put it to you as a question, have you ever had that thought as you read portions of the Bible? You think to yourself, this part is poorly suited to public reading, let alone to teaching, preaching. It would be perfectly fine if we just never hear that part of the Bible. And if you're familiar at all, I can guess some of those that come to mind. I see some of you nodding. And they're the same ones I would think of. For instance, long, seemingly wastelands of genealogical material in Numbers or Chronicles. And you laugh with a bit of, oh, yeah, I felt that now that I think about it. What do you do with that? And I'm sensitive to the argument that some of those sections don't feel like they're written in a style designed to be read and taught. I'm sensitive that it can feel that way. Or what about parts of the New Testament that are a little bit similar the genealogies of Jesus, saying, you know, and he begot him, and he begot him, and he begot him. Does that really need to be read and taught, although they are not nearly as long as the ones in the Old Testament? Or what about some of Paul's extended greetings at the end of Romans? Do you need to hear the names of all these ancient, long-perished people? But before we dismiss including passages like that out of hand, I would encourage you to bear in mind the example of other believers in the past. For instance, I already mentioned the book of Nehemiah and how Ezra read a portion of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8 says that they read from the morning until the noon before there was any explanation. Now, I want to be clear, that seems to have been an extraordinary circumstance at a time when they had not heard the word for a long time, and they had certainly not been keeping it. And they wanted to make an impact upon the people. Probably they're reading the entire book of Deuteronomy, if not large segments of other books. And there's no indication that they would have skipped the genealogies. They showed dignity to the word by including it. Similarly, heed the example of the early church. There's a writing called The First Apology, written by a man named Justin, now called Justin Martyr, because he was killed for his faith. He was writing in around 150 A.D. I think the last apostles die around 90 A.D. So this is within 60 years. And he describes what an early Christian worship service looked and felt like. Very instructive for us. As you go through, you find out the order of service that we follow is basically the same. We're not trying to do something new here. This is what the apostles handed down, and it's what we do. But he says this. And on the day called Sunday... All who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place and the memoirs of the apostles, which is for the gospels, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And then when the reader has ceased, the president, the pastor, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Now, it says as long as time permits. I'm not going to assume that the amount of time they had was six hours. But there is an expectation that the word is premier. Even the way it's described there, it seems that the primary thing would be the reading of Scripture. Some churches maintain that tradition to this day, especially where there is lower literacy rates, to have long readings of Scripture on the Lord's Day. But if we don't heed the example of believers before us, then we should heed the testimony of the word itself, Here's 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It's not just inspired, it's profitable. All of it. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You've ever been to one of those restaurants? I don't know that I've been to one of these restaurants, but I've heard about them where it's fine cuisine and everything on the plate is supposed to be edible. Everything on the plate is supposed to be edible. If that's some kind of aspiration, I suppose, among chefs, it is much more the case for the Lord when he put together the nourishing value of the word. There is nothing, now there may be parts that you don't know how to digest yet, milk versus meat. But there's nothing that is not good for us in the word. Hear what Jesus says, Matthew 4 verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This suggests to me that were our appetites more whetted by faith, we would find that all of the word is good to hear and to learn from. No part of it to be set aside as unprofitable. The second temptation is perhaps more insidious. And it's to stand in judgment over apostolic or prophetic teaching and to determine for ourselves, this part, even if it's true, it's too divisive or it's too offensive to bring forward at this time. And so the ball gets kicked down further and further. We're not going to deal with that at this time. Or maybe we shouldn't ever deal with that in a public setting, maybe in a private setting. Any number of topics could be brought forward, and the reality is that some of them change throughout time and place. Try having a sermon in the 1840s in the South on a number of subjects. Try having certain sermons here at this time. There are many different subjects that are always going to be difficult. Questions about wealth, questions about work ethic, questions about race, questions about sexual morality. And yet, notice, in the context of this epistle, Paul deals with many of those things. And then he says, all of this is to be read. There was very likely a fear that calling out in the way that Paul does, the fact that some people are being lazy and need to get their act together, that's going to offend them. Let's just be patient a little longer, talk to them privately. Now, I want to be clear, this is not a justification for ministers to go beyond the word and speaking in a lewd way or in an unnecessarily inflammatory way. But if the Lord has chosen to speak hard things, it's him bringing that message. There's a minister, a notable figure in the 20th century, J. Gresham Machen, who was one of the founders of the denomination that Reverend Checksonator belongs to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church his name is Jay Gresham Machen and he made this comment because he had been asked not to preach on certain things he says men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative that we can preach the truth without attacking error but if we follow that advice we shall have to close our bible and desert its teachings the new testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. Polemic means to make an argument, to enter into a kind of combat. Now, it's a combat out of love. The goal is never to stand up here and be cruel. But God speaks hard things in love. Sometimes we're tempted, then, to hold back and to not address those things. These are the main temptations I think more could be added For instance, that some of what Paul says is just hard to understand. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. Peter, in one of his epistles, says exactly that. He says, much of what Paul said is hard to understand. People twisted against themselves. More could be added, but the point here is simply to lay that these are temptations we have to guard against. What then is the positive reason? Why does the Apostle Paul want the whole church to hear the whole epistle? And by extension, why does the Holy Spirit want all of us to be familiar with the whole counsel of God revealed in the apostles and the prophets? This is our second main heading, and this has to do with the solemn duty that we have. The duty is on both sides, by the way. I have a solemn duty, as do all ministers of the word, not to clip off portions. The elders have a solemn duty. Not only to make sure that certain things are not said, but to make sure certain things are said. But then there's a duty on the part of God's people to be receptive, to hear, to be like Samuel who says, I hear, O Lord, your servant hears. We all have a calling to listen, not to the parts we like only, but to all which the Lord would say. Why is that? The first reason is very simple. Turn with me back to chapter 2 and look there. The first reason is very simple, it begins in verse 13, and has to do with the fact that these are not just Paul's words and ideas, or that of some smart person or some inspirational person. Verse 13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers what it really is the word of God these aren't just inspirational myths the best stories that human beings came up with it's not just life advice from some smooth talking creative individual the authority at the end of the day comes from the fact that it's the word of God and therefore it's not the right of the minister to withhold part of the counsel of God Nor is it the right of any member to say on this subject, I'll close my ears. But also, you see, he says, which is at work in you believers. Hallelujah for that. It is at work. When you come to church, it's not, I need to, primarily, I need to get the list of things I'm supposed to do. You are called to do things. But it's God working through the word graciously that both gives you a sense of your calling And equips you with the willingness to run in his way. And the Lord wants his people to hear that. He wants to be at work. You think of two people fighting with swords. Imagine one of them doesn't have the full range of motion, he's restricted in some way. If he's going to find that place between the armor where he can deal a death blow, he needs the whole range of motion. Hear what it says in Hebrews chapter 4 In a group of this size, even in a group of two or three, different individuals will be pierced by different things in the word. We don't, though we all struggle with sin, we do not all cling to the same sins to the same extent. And we don't all doubt the promises of God in the same areas. And so the word is to be given its full range of motion for our good not to kill us, but to kill sin and unbelief. And the Lord desires that all of his people would hear all of the message that comes to us through the apostles and the prophets. The second reason is also very simple. It has to do with love. It has to do with affection. Remember, I had mentioned to you that Paul and Silas and Timothy were whisked away very quickly from this fledgling congregation. To whom they had felt knitted in love these people had perhaps never in their life experienced the kind of love overflowing from the Holy Spirit through these missionaries they felt so accepted so adored in Christ as should be the case among us but now the apostle and his team have left and there was probably the temptation whether from outside or from within to feel abandoned to feel maybe used were they really here for us, did they love us? Now they've gone. And the enemy would sow among them all kinds of doubts. We know that happened in Corinth. Lying teachers rose up who wanted to push out Paul, and they saw those congregations as an opportunity to make some money. So you've got to push out the other person, and I'm going to become the head honcho here. The apostle wants the whole church to hear declarations of the love of God's people but if they need the declarations of the love of God's people even more than that he wants all of them to hear of the love in Jesus Christ from which all of that merely human love came no part of this epistle was to be held back in other words imagine one of these elders just bringing up and these are the things he said need to stop the sexual morality the idleness the disrespect shown towards elders and then they leave out the parts That are all about the grace and the peace of God given not just to those who are standing well, but those who are struggling. Until a person has been formally excluded from the body through discipline, we are not even to begin doubting that the Lord is with them. We seek their restoration. And even when they're outside, we're praying for them to be brought to faith. He desires that the love of Christ would overflow to them. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. It's not about our love. It's about the love of Christ. And that then brings us back to verse 28. Look with me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The fullest measure of the grace of Christ is experienced when we have the fullest measure of the counsel of God. When we understand both our acceptance and what we are called to in Christ. And so we've seen together this solemn duty. By way of conclusion, I want to do basically two things. One, I want to lay upon you just a little bit more the weight of this. And then out of that, to lay before you an encouragement of how we can make sure, or at least try to make sure, that these things happen here. First, regarding the weight of this, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts to chapter 20. What you're about to see in Acts chapter 20 or hear in Acts chapter 20 is laid especially upon present or future officers in the church, not simply pastors, especially elders. There are more of them. Acts chapter 20, verse 26, here Paul is speaking for the final time to the congregation in the city of Ephesus, and he addresses the consistory, the pastors and elders there. Verse 26, he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, Do you ever think about the fact that blood guilt stands over those who are responsible for ministering the word? A responsibility to the Lord for the lives of others? Not only spiritually, but we think of the future resurrection. Who will stand? And on what grounds is a minister guilty or innocent? Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so I exhort you, strive and pray that the Lord upholds you in that. Not to shrink from declaring or desiring to have declared the whole counsel. And not over time to become satisfied with a shrunken ministry of the word. It probably would not happen instantly it would happen over time as we seek to placate itching ears and the word warns of exactly that itching ears desiring to hear what would please them and so we are to beware and look what it says in verse 28 the admonition pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of god which he has obtained with his own blood I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. One week or two weeks into being the senior pastor here, my goal is not to make you suspicious of me. But on the other hand, did you not just read, men from among you will rise up, and do you think they're going to put on a really obvious wolf hat, the danger will inevitably come in churches from men whom we seem to trust. And that doesn't mean doubt everything, live in constant, you know, dominated by suspicion. But it means be diligent. Don't ever create the occasion where we could go down that path, where we're okay with the whole counsel of God not being held up. How do we do that? How do we have structures in place to try to ensure this? And I say structures beyond just the desire. We do need the desire for all the word. It's not going to happen if the congregation doesn't desire that. My own choice to be here is in part influenced by what I have experienced of a congregation who for years has wanted, seemingly, the whole counsel of God. I've never once ever, though I've said, I wish I said certain things better and clearer, But I've never once heard anyone, whether an elder or a member of this church, say, you shouldn't talk about that. If it's in the word, it's on the field, and it has to be dealt with. But beyond the desire, what do we do? And I'm going to suggest that we maintain two things. They're not the only ways to do this. But the first is that we continue to have expository preaching of whole books of the Bible. Expository preaching of whole books of the Bible, particularly the New Testament books by their very structure, the way they were written, the genre of those books is designed to be heard in full. And the same would be true of major portions of the Old Testament, though I don't believe it's wrong to preach through all of those as well. There are ways to do that poorly that dry up a church and can hurt it. But the desire to do it well should be present. Over the past five years, we have gone through... Twelve books in their entirety, six from the Old Testament, six from the New, and a number of other books in large portion. It should be our desire to continue that, to intersperse that, not to grow weary and not to presume what's in there, or to read ahead and say, oh, maybe we can skip this passage. There may be parts where I or another minister, the best we can do is say, I don't know what this part means, but let's hear it and let's speak about the things we do understand, Many times I've opened commentaries, a commentary that was described as the best on a given subject. And I needed a burning question answered. And I turn to that section to hear, what does this preeminent scholar of the word have to say? And they say, regarding this passage, I do not know. <laughs> and they just move on. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have value or that the Holy Spirit won't even work through the reading. This is one of the reasons why it can be okay to read a larger portion than what is preached And yet the Lord uses it. The second way that we do this is through the continuance of catechetical preaching. Catechetical preaching is simply this. It means to answer the word. Catechesis comes from roots that basically mean to answer questions. What are the FAQs, the frequently answered questions of Christian doctrine? Rather than letting any one minister decide, the church has seen fit from ancient times to come up with summaries these are the things we all agree need to be addressed. And aside from the Apostles' Creed, the other ancient ecumenical creeds, our churches have for centuries and centuries used the, three, the so-called three forms of unity. Children, if you're not familiar, the three forms of unity we call them that, they're forms because they have a certain shape. And they're called the forms of unity because they help unite us in our understanding of what the Bible teaches. And there are three of them, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. None of these stand over the scripture, but their function is to gather together in simple language, what do we believe on the whole council of God? And our church order binds the ministers and elders of the church. In these words, it says that ordinarily and sequentially, ordinarily means something like a majority, right? Whether it's 51 or 98% of sermons, different churches do it differently, but that at one of, the ser- uh, one of the services each week, ordinarily we'll have the topic of the sermon taken from these themes. So that the minister is not free to choose whatever he likes through most of the year. There are some ministers who are exceptionally gifted and balanced, and they can do that well. My point is not to say that they are all unfaithful, but it is to say that, arguably, history has taught us we should not skip around for the majority of the year, that every generation, the, the mere four years that our high schoolers are here before they leave, that they would have the opportunity to hear the whole counsel of God. And I would lay an exhortation, especially upon parents with children between the ages of 13 and 18. I know that it's simply not feasible for some of you to be present at both services or at an evening service. My point is not to lay a burden on someone where there's a genuine inability, or where it would create tremendous strife in the home. But it is an encouragement, find ways, especially for your children to be present at both. Find ways for that to happen. And at times, we will seek to switch. Our plan in September, the consistory has requested that in September, we'll begin for the first time in a long time to have the catechetical series be in the morning. This is to maximize for a season the advantage of the whole church understanding the whole counsel of the Lord. Remember the reason, verse 28 again, it is to have the fullest experience of the grace of Christ. Grace is not a thing we can deserve, it's not a thing we can coerce, but it's a thing promised to us in Christ. Why don't we ask even now for the Lord to give it to us? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for setting us upon a foundation stronger than anything from ourselves, our intuitions, our reason, our zeal. You set us upon your word. We thank you for revealing to us in it all the issues of life. We ask that you would give us patience to seek from your word those things which you say. We ask that you would help us to always inhabit an attitude of faith-seeking understanding. Lord, we pray that you would sustain this congregation and every individual present and those who can't be here with us but who are united to us in heart and faith in the love of all your word, that you would uphold the ministry of the word not only here but throughout your churches such that the ministers would stand to the back and the word would come forward, And that we would hear in it the voice of our Savior Christ. Please apply these things for his glory and our good. For in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.